I'll read Psalm 5 and then pray. So if you guys want to follow along, it says in Psalm 5, Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my meditation. Give heed to the voice of my cry. My King and my God, for to you I will pray. My voice you shall hear in the morning, O Lord. In the morning I will direct it to you, and I will look up. Verse 4, for you are not a God who takes pleasure in wickedness, nor shall evil dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand in your, pre- in your sight. <clears throat> you hate all the workers of iniquity. You shall destroy those who speak falsehood. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. Verse 7, but as for me, I will come into your house in the multitude of your mercy and fear of you. I will worship toward your holy temple. Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies. Make your way straight before my face, for there is no faithfulness in their mouth. Their inward part is destruction. Their throat is an open tomb. They flatter with their tongue. Pronounce them guilty, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels. Cast them out in the multitude of their transgressions, for they have rebelled against you. But let all those... But let all... Those rejoice who put their trust in you. Let them ever shout for joy because you defended them, because you defend them. Let those who are also, let those also who love your name be joyful in you. For you, O Lord, will bless the righteous with favor. You will surround him as with a shield. Lord, and we pray that you would do that for us this morning, that you would surround us with a shield, Lord a shield of your love, a shield of your protection. God, given us faith, a measure of faith, Lord, to walk after and to follow you, Lord, to take the words that you speak to us this morning through through this uh, psalm, apply it to our lives, Lord, to learn to, 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 to pray to you, and Father, how to love others around us well. Lord, we pray for the Catalyst Church, Lord, as they gather together this morning. Lord, we pray for health, and, and safety for them. We pray, Lord, that your word would be taught by Pastor Ryan in truth, and God, that grace and forgiveness and mercy would be brought forth as your gospel message is proclaimed. Lord, we love the good news of your son, Jesus, being sent to us. And Lord, we love you, and we want to um, honor you in all that we do this morning. So Lord, be glorified. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so this psalm is like Psalm 3 that we've already studied through in that it's a psalm that David, according to uh, verse 3, offered up a prayer to God in the morning. So this is a psalm of prayer. It was a psalm that was one of David's morning prayers. And we're not told when David wrote this psalm, but again, as we, as we continue some of the contextual flow of perhaps what we've already read up to this point, we know that it's during a time of crisis. And maybe, perhaps it's again alongside with what we read uh, back in 2 Samuel, where we know that one of the psalms that David had already written was in regards to the rebellion that was led by his son Absalom. And a couple of reasons for perhaps why we can make this conclusion is because of the description that David gives of his enemies in verses 4 through 6, but also because of verse 9, which could have been referring to the lies that, and deceptions that Absalom had been spreading for those two years before he decided to enact his rebellion and actually raise up a force to come against David. And we know that, that Absalom had spoken there at the city gates about David in the months and years leading up to the actual insurrection that took place. But um, if you look at verse 10, 
we see that this, because of what we read in verse 10, where it says this, pronounce them guilty, O God. This is what we refer to as, or is what is referred to as an, an imprecatory psalm, literally a psalm of cursing. And that kind of might kind of blow your mind when you think about God's people speaking a cursing upon someone. And, and um, others that also carry some of this classification, the same classification is Psalm 12, Psalm 35, 37, 58, 59, 69, 79, 109, 139, and 140. And I, and I, I give you that list because there's many psalms that, that are psalms of cursing. And, and before you jump to the conclusion of like, all right on, my prayers, I can be cursing people around me, that's, that's not what we're learning here in this psalm. But the writers appear to be describing in this psalm as uh, a God of wrath, right? A God who is anxiously waiting to destroy sinners. And uh, the writer also seems to be picturing themselves in contrast as people who, who, who are righteous and deserving, perhaps, uh, or, or not deserving of God's wrath or judgment, but there are people who are asking for terrible revenge against their enemies. But as we, as we think about these things, what we need to do is we need to consider certain facts, okay? First of all, we need to, to well, facts that we need to, to consider uh, before we conclude that these men were people who could not forgive. And that's kind of the idea. Lord, just get them. You know, and, and, and rather than being a person who, 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 who forgives and asks for God's blessing and, 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 and for pray for your enemies, that kind of a thing. And, um, well, also, when, when we read Psalms like this, I think we can also come to the wrong conclusion about God. Wrong conclusion about the person who wrote the Psalm as people who are a man who's unwilling to forgive, but also a wrong conclusion about God in that God must somehow be some kind of, like a harsh and unforgiving and unloving God. So, what I want you to consider is consider the enemies described in verse in this psalm, okay? In verse 10, we're told that there are men who had rebelled against God. That's the first thing that we need to keep in mind. These are just not men who struggle with sin. These are men who have rejected God, men who have rebelled against God. In light of this, we have to also consider that the Jewish people um, were the ones that were writing these psalms, right? And the Jewish people were the covenant people of God. And according to Leviticus chapter 2, and also in Deuteronomy chapters 27 through 29, God had promised his people, the Hebrew people, his chosen people, whom he had set apart, he promised to protect them, right, as long as they obeyed him. And even as far back as the covenant that God had made with Abraham back in Genesis chapter 12, we see that God had promised to bless those who blessed Israel, right, and to curse those who cursed them. That's something that we even say today as Christians, you know, that, that God blesses those who bless Israel, and we want to be those people who, who pronounce blessing and, 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 and exercise blessing towards God's chosen people because we know that God curses those who curse them. And so when we read about these Hebrew men in the context of the covenant that God had made to the Jewish people, when we, can, when we read about these Hebrew men in these Psalms, David in this specific instance, asking for God to deal justly with his enemies against these wicked enemies, 
we should see that in part they were only asking for God to fulfill his covenant promises, right? God, you said you would protect me, you would protect us. God, you said that you would bless those who bless us and you would curse those who curse us. So God, I'm calling upon the covenantal promises that you've spoken to me. Do you see what I'm talking about? That's part of what's going on here. Now, in John, 1 John chapter 4, verse 8, Eight, and then a little later on in verse 16, it tells us this about God, because I want to paint the whole picture. It tells us that God is a God of love, right? God is love. But in 1 John chapter 1, verse 5, it also tells us that God is light, right? God is love and God is light, both together at the same time in perfect harmony. And so what this means is that, is that God who is light, that God is, God is everything that is good. God is everything that is holy. Therefore, because God is holy, he must deal with sin justly. Why? Because it's the loving thing to do. Right? And the fact of the matter is that ever since the fall of man, which is recorded for us in Genesis chapter 3, there has been this battle going on in the world between good and evil, right? And tr the, between, a battle between the truth and, and, and the lie. A, a, a battle between justice and injustice. A battle between right and wrong. And we who are God's people, are, 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 we cannot be neutral in this battle. And so we see in this psalm that there's not neutrality, right? David's taking a side. He's taking God's side. He's aligning himself with God against the evil in the world, against the lies, against the injustice, against the wrong. C.S. Lewis wrote in his book called Reflections on the Psalms. It's a great book. I, would, I love C.S. Lewis. This, it's not a commentary on each individual psalm as it is really a reflection on all of the psalms, dealing categorically with different things. If you don't have it, go on Amazon and buy it. I, I highly recommend it. But he said this with this kind of thought that we're talking about. He said this about the Hebrew people. He said, quote, if the Jews cursed more bitterly than the pagans, this was, I think, at least in part because they took right and wrong more seriously. For if we look at their railings, kind of like what we read here in Psalm 5, he says, we find they are usually angry, not simply because things have been done to them, but because things are manifestly wrong and hateful to God as well as the victim. And that's what we see going on in the psalm in all the other imprecatory psalms that we read, which I gave you the list through. And the point is, guys, is that we relate it to ourselves. The point is, is if we see this psalm and others that are like it as some kind of evidence or, or a permission for, us, for the author to then be, to, 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 to have like an unforgiving and bitter spirit, then we fail to see them as ultimately men who were filled with the Holy Spirit, who really wanted the Lord's will, God's will to be accomplished. That's the perspective that we need to take. And if we don't see it that way, then perhaps we have a problem. We have a problem. If we don't see it that way, then we need to check our own heart, because perhaps we have our promise, a problem in that where we, like C.S. Lewis pointed out, don't, ha don't, don't really hate sin enough to get upset 
with the wickedness or the ungodliness that is around us. There is wickedness and ungodliness around us, and it should, we should be upset about it. And, and if we're not, then perhaps we've become so bombarded by the evil and violence that is permeating our, our media and our society and our world today that we've somehow become used to the darkness that is around us. And that's a scary thing. That's a scary thing. So with all this being said, as we begin to go through this next psalm, I want to point out that if this psalm was in fact written when David was fleeing from Absalom, it doesn't have to be, but perhaps it could have, but it teaches us ultimately about, um, an, it, we ultimately learn an important lesson about our own fellowship with God, and it's this. And the lesson is, is that there is no amount of danger. Listen, guys, think about it in the time that we live in now. There is no amount of danger, and there is no amount of discomfort that should keep us from our time of fellowship with God. That is one of the underlying lessons of this message, of what we read here. There should be no amount of danger and no amount of discomfort that should keep us from our time of fellowship with God. And beginning each day, knowing that this is a psalm, a prayer, a prayer, a morning prayer, beginning each day with a dedicated time to be with God is essential. Listen, in Mark chapter 1, verse 35, we see that Jesus, who is our greatest example, began his day by rising early in the morning in order to pray and seek God. Over and over and over again we see that. In light of this, I don't think it should ever be over. I don't think I could ever overemphasize how important it is for each one of us to begin our day by seeking God first. Because if we're not doing this, or when we don't do this, then we're ultimately missing out on so much of what God has waiting for us when we rise. Furthermore, if we're not starting our day with God, then we're more likely, I'm more likely, and you guys are too, we're more likely to go about our day according to our own plans, are we not? And directing our feet down a path that seems right to us, rather than getting God's plan for our day and then allowing for Him to direct our feet down the path that He wishes for us to travel down. Now, as we consider these things, I want to point out that as we go through this psalm, David gives three valuable instructions. If you're taking note, this is kind of outlined for where we're going. He gives us three valuable instructions to encourage us in our daily fellowship with the Lord. And the first is that we need to prepare to meet with the Lord. That's the first instruction that we see. In our time of devotion, in our morning devotion, are we preparing ourselves to meet with the Lord. Secondly, the second instruction that David gives to us by example in this psalm is that when we come to the Lord, we need to seek to please the Lord. Is that our heart's motive? In our, in our fellowship with the Lord, are we seeking to please Him? And the last thing that we see at the end of this psalm is, is this, this instruction to submit to the Lord. Prepare to meet with the Lord, seek to please the Lord, and lastly, submit to the Lord. And that, that, that is really an outline, a guideline, if you will, for us in prayer as well. And so in verses 1 through 3 of Psalm 5, as we prepare to meet the Lord, David says this. He says, Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my meditation. In other words, the things that I'm thinking about, what my mind is consumed with. He says, Give ear to the voice of my cry, my King and my God, for to you I will pray. My voice you shall hear in the morning, O Lord, in the morning I will direct it to you and I will look up. 
Now, I believe that if any one of us, think about it, guys, think about it and just from a worldly point of view. If any one of us had an, an opportunity to have a personal meeting with someone who we thought was very important, I think each one of us would take time to prepare for that meeting, would we not? If we were talking about going to this person about a certain subject matter, we would make sure that we were well studied and knew what we were talking about before we went to meet with that person. If it was someone of great importance, I'm sure we would take the time to put on nice clothes. You know, to, if guys, we would shave, we would comb our hair. You know, we would do things to prepare. We just went, we didn't just roll out of bed, put on our slippers and get in our car and drive if we had a, a meeting with, you know, the President of the United States. You know, somebody of great importance. We take time. Yet I wonder, guys, when we think about this in, in our meeting time with, with God, I'm wondering if we're doing this when it comes to our moaning divorces with God. Are we preparing to meet with the Lord? Or are we simply rushing into and then rushing through this time as our hearts and our minds are focused on anything and everything else other than God? Now, in this first verse, David says a couple of things. He says, give ear to my words, O Lord, consider my meditation. And then in verse 2, he says this. He says, give heed to the voice of my cry. Listen, in light of this, in light of these things, we should see that David, he's no different than all of us in that, in that for David, there were things that were going on in his life that were consuming his thoughts. Things that he was meditating on. And without a doubt, he had many things and many concerns like all of us do. And in addition to whatever the current problem was that David was facing with his enemies, we know that, that like David, he, or that David, he, he was a husband, right? He was a husband. He was a father, as well as a king. And so there could have been any a number of things that were consuming his thoughts and, 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 and could have been possibly distracting him from this time with God. And maybe even now, in this time that we're spending with God, maybe your mind is wandering to things outside of the sanctuary that you've been meditating on. That is distracting you from the thing that God has for you now. David says, consider my meditations, Lord. These are the things that are going on. And yet when David came to God, he took his mind off of those things and he gave them over to God by asking him to consider his meditations. Lord, consider these things. Lord, they're yours. Take them from me. The worries, the anxieties, the fears, the answers that I don't, uh, the, the, question, the answers to the questions that I don't have, whatever these things are. And, and he's all, Lord, you consider them. And then David focuses, his, his focus changes at that point as, as he considered God, okay, you consider my meditations, and he says, I'm going to consider you. I'm going to set my mind off of these things, and I'm going to set my mind on you, my heart on you. And he does this by saying this, my king and my God, for to you I will pray. There's a shift. Do you see that? There's a shift. And David did and said things in preparation. David said and did these things in preparation to spend time with God in preparation to talk to God, in preparation for God to talk to him so that David might hear. 
And when we study and read through the Psalms that David wrote, it's evident that David was faithful over and over again, like I mentioned a couple weeks ago, to keep these morning appointments with God. They were important to him. Furthermore, we see that David's time of morning devotion, here's, here's some instructions in our prayer life and how we prepare. We see that David's time of morning devotion was also orderly and systematic. He was orderly and systematic in how he went about it. Look, the word direct in verse 3 that you see there is the word arak. It's the Hebrew word arak. It's used for the first time in Leviticus chapter 1, verse 8 to describe specifically how the priest, when he would perform the sacrifice, would then take the pieces of the animal that had sacrificed and orderly lay them out before the Lord on the altar in this exact right order that had been pointed by God. The arak, the direct, the direct way. Furthermore, this Hebrew word arak is also used to describe the, the arranging of the wood that was on the altar that would be lit to burn, to set forth the sweet aroma to the Lord. It's used again in Genesis chapter 22, verse 9, and then again in Leviticus chapter 24, verse 8, when it speaks of how the 12 loaves of bread, one loaf for each of the tribes of Israel, was to be ranged on the show table in the holy place before the, 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 the most holy place of the tabernacle where the presence of God was at. They just didn't, priests didn't just go on there and carry all the loaves of bread and just, just dump it down on the table and go, okay, job done. There was a specific order to it. And that same word, arak, is used. And David uses this word in relationship to coming before, before God. In light of this, we should see that when David said in verse 3, in the morning I will direct it to you, he wasn't careless in his praying. He had everything arranged in order. Now the same word Hebrew, now the same um, Hebrew word Iraq, it also, guys, it has this military uh, connotation to it in regards to a soldier who presents himself to his commander in order to receive his orders. Here I am, what do you want me to do? It's the same word, Iraq. It has some implications into the military aspect, the military world. And you know that David, David was the king, and so he had many of his commanders who would come to him on a regular basis, and soldiers who would present themselves to him in order to get their, in, in order to get their orders, their marching orders, and what to do. And, and, and in light of this, we want to again see that, that when David went on to the end of verse 3 to say, in the morning, I will direct it to you. And what does he then say? I will look up. Here I am. I will come to you in an orderly way with purpose and systematic, uh, uh, in a systematic way that I'm presenting myself to you in preparation. But then I'm going to look to you. I'm here to receive. And David in this thing, in this sense, in this one verse where he says, in the morning I will direct it to you and I will look up, he was first presenting himself as a priest who said his thoughts, his concerns, and his requests in this orderly sacrifice before God, but also as a good soldier who was presenting himself to the Lord in order to receive the order from his commander. And likewise, in our daily mornings, in, in, in our daily morning meetings with God, we should come prepared like priests, bringing orderly sacrifices to the altar, praise, worship, thanksgiving. 
and like soldiers, reporting our captain to receive our daily marching orders, preparing ourselves, prepared to come to the Lord. Verse 4, for you are not a God who takes pleasure in the wickedness, takes pleasure in wickedness, nor shall evil dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand in your sight, and you hate all the workers of iniquity. You shall destroy those who speak falsehood, the Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. Now the second thing, I already mentioned that David shows us in this psalm in regards to our, our morning time of devotion, in regards to our prayer life, is that we should seek to please the Lord. And he said this in verses 4 through 6. And I want to notice as we look at this that the emphasis in these verses is put on the ungodly, but it's in the context of the ungodly not being able to what? Come into the presence of God. Now, I'm sure it's no surprise to any of us when I say that the Bible declares that God takes no pleasure in the wicked, nor can God be neutral, right, about sin. And therefore, rebellious, unrepentant sinners could not and cannot enter into his presence. But there are many other places in the Bible when we are told about those whom God is pleased with, okay? What's the, what's the contrast of that? We know what's not pleasing to God, but what is pleasing to God? And when we come to the Lord, how do we seek to be pleasing to Him? And in Psalm 147, verse 11, it tells us that God delights, God is pleased with, or God delights in those who fear Him. Number one. Number two, in Psalm 69, verse 31, it says that God delights in those who offer sincere praise to Him. Furthermore, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6, it tells us this, that in order to please God, we must have what? Faith. But just not any old faith. It tells us our faith must be placed in Jesus Christ, God's Son, who according to Matthew chapter 3, verse 17, God said this, that this is in whom I am well pleased. And we put our faith in the one whom God is well pleased with. And so when we consider what David writes here, first look in verses 5 through 6, alongside what that he then goes on to declare in verses 9 and 10, we need to understand that we're being told about a group of people, right, in this psalm, who deliberately and repeatedly disobey God and think nothing of the consequences. It's the shaking of your fist in the face of God, knowing that it's a rebellious thing and you just don't care. That's the person. In fact, if you remember when we were studying through the book of Revelation, we were told about these people often. And the Apostle John describes them in Revelation chapter 21, verse 8. And you can go read about his description of these type of people. But he, he, he describes them in contrast, in a contrasting way, to those who overcome by faith in Jesus, saying that these are those who shall have their part, those who are, who are the rebellious part, those who shall have their part in the lake of fire that burns with fire and brimstone. In light of this, I want to point out that in John chapter 3, verse 16, right? Because there's, there's a biblical contrast to this as well. Because in John chapter 3, verse 16, it tells us that God loves the entire world, Right? For God so loved the world, just not part of it, the entire world, that he what? The entire world of lost sinners, that he sent his only son to be the savior 
of the world. And, and, and when Jesus died on the cross, he died on the cross for the sins of the world. And his invitation to salvation is sent out to all who will believe in and come to him. However, guys, this truth of God's love and of God's amazing grace does not change the fact that God hates sin and the fact that God punishes sinners. Right? In fact, David here in verse 4 makes it clear that God has no pleasure in them and they cannot dwell with Him. Or as verse 5 says, even stand before Him. Furthermore, verse 6 makes it clear that God abhors or hates all murderers and liars and He will destroy them if they do not repent and put their trust in His Son, Jesus. Now, when we consider this word hate, it's such a strong word. It's, 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 it's a word that is such a strong word in regards to the language and, 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 and the emotion that's behind it, right? But also we have this word hate here in verse 5 and then, then the word abhor, similar kind of strong language here in verse 6. And, and, and when you read this, you know, if, on our first reading you might cringe a little bit and we might think, man, this language is a little harsh, in, in, in the midst, I think, of the politically correct world that we now live in where so many people have stopped speaking the truth because they're afraid of what? We don't want to offend someone. But I think, guys, we have no right to make this kind of conclusion considering the Bible makes it clear that in order to be pleasing to God, we must love what God loves and we must hate what God hates. It's not one without the other. And there are Christians on either side of the fence that think it's only one or the other, but it's both. we got to love what God loves and hate what God hates. In fact, there are many places in the Bible, both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, that teaches us that this is exactly what God expects of us as His children. Places like Psalm 97.10. Go read it. Psalm 19, one thir- Psalm 119, verse one. 113. Verse, Psalm uh, 139, verse 21. Also Proverbs 6, verses, 6, verses 16 through 17. Amos chapter 5, verse 15. And then the New Testament, Romans chapter 12, verse 9. Now, perhaps when we're thinking about being pleasing to God, there's a, there's a better way for us to understand this as well as maybe even to communicate this to others, okay, around us. And it's to realize this, guys, and, 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 and this is where we need to understand that God's not like us, right? God's not like us in this, in many ways, but in one sense that, that, that often our hatred towards evil is emotional, is it not? We see him go, ha, you know, and then we usually do something do, stupid or say something stupid. But understand, God's hatred of evil isn't emotional, it's judicial. It's judicial. And therefore, it's an expression of his holiness. We look at a judge today and we go, he's a good judge because what? Good judges honor the law. They uphold the law. There's not an emotion. And a matter of fact, when judges react emotionally, as many of the judges in our world do today, and don't just hold to the laws of the land, they make stupid decisions. And we have bad judges 
Because the human part of it gets in the way. And, and we can do the same way when we react emotionally rather than judicially and fail to see that it needs to be an expression of holiness. God's holiness. God who is holy, who we're called to be holy like Him. But in light of all this, we must come to the conclusion that if we want to have fellowship with God, we need to feel the same kind of anguish towards evil. Literally, this godly anger plus a godly love How does that work together? Only through the power of the Holy Spirit. As we take no pleasure in the wickedness that is in this fallen world. Guys, it's not just about looking out and being condemning. It's first looking within and going, who are we? What are we? Are we taking pleasure in the wickedness of this world that God abhors? Because first we need to seek to be pleasing to Him when we come to Him in prayer. And so as we we take this, this attitude of anguish towards towards evil, literally a godly anger plus a godly love and, and, and not taking any pleasure in wickedness that in this fallen world, then we seek to be pleasing to our God. And so when we enter into our time as devotion, David, David's words instruct us, right, to be prepared, prepared to meet with the Lord. And then we should also seek to, to please the Lord. Why? Because those who are pleasing to the Lord are those who can be in his presence. And ultimately we know that's through faith in Christ, Right? But in the final verses of this psalm, we find a third instruction, and it's this this submitting to the Lord. We've got to submit to the Lord. Why pray if you're not going to submit to the Lord, right? By the way, that's like having a conversation with your two-year-old who asks if they can do something, and you tell them no, and they they don't really want your permission. They just wanted to basically let you know this is what they were going to do. Submission to the Lord, right? In 7 through 12, we read, but it's for me, right? David says, but it's for me. I will come into your house in the multitude of your mercy. In fear of you, I will worship toward your holy temple. Now, key verses here, verse 8, lead me. Underline that, highlight that. That's, that's, a, that's a word of submission. That's a phrase of submission. Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies. Make your way straight before my face, for there is no faithfulness in their mouth. Their inward parts is destruction. Their throat is an open tomb. They flatter with their tongue. Verse 10, another point of instruction in regards to submission. Pronounce them guilty, O God. Literally, that is, you pronounce them guilty, O God. Because lots of times we get in this place where we think that we're God and we start condemning people around us. And that's not an act of submission. That's a prideful attitude where we begin to take matters into our own hand. And, God, and David's coming to the Lord and he said, okay, Lord, you do it. Pronounce them guilty. Let them fall by their own counsels. Cast them in the multitude of their transgressions for they have rebelled against you. And finally, verse 11, but let all of those who rejoice put their trust in you. Let them ever shout for joy because you defend them. Let those also who love your name be joyful in you. Verse 12, the third and final um, aspect of submission. He says, for you, O Lord, will bless the righteous. Who's going to do the blessing? God. God will. And with favor, you will surround him as with a shield. So we need to submit to the Lord. And when David wrote at the beginning of verse 7, now go back to verse 7, because this is the foundation for it. He said, but as for me, we see first that he was contrasting himself to the wicked people that rebelled against God. And in his prayer, his submission to God is seen that follows as he made these three specific requests. And David's underlying attitude of submission is revealed in verse 7 when David professed this desire to be in the presence of God and to worship him, to worship God with what? He says, to worship him with fear. 
literally with this, with this attitude of respect, with piety, and with reverence, and this attitude of submission, David made with this attitude of submission, there in verse 7, David met his first request knowing, asking for God to lead him in verse 8. For God to be the one to guide him and to show him the way that he needed to go. In short, David was asking for God's wisdom, right? And James, it tells us, if anyone lacks, lacks wisdom, ask of God, and he'll freely give it. He was asking for God for his wisdom in order to navigate through his current problems. In doing so, David reveals that he had, he had no desire to figure out what to do on his own, apart from God whose wisdom was greater than David's. And you see, this, this, prayer, this attitude of prayer of submission goes, okay, God, whatever you tell me to do, wherever you, you tell me to go, that's where I'm going to go. If we don't have a heart of submission, how can we even ask that? Because we're never going to be willing to hear. Lead me, God. You lead me. In addition to, to, to praying for God to lead him, we see that David also prayed for justice in verses 9 through 10, right? And, and, and not, but David was saying, Lord, He's saying, ultimately, you know better than I do. God, you know these people and that they need to be judged or the justice needs to be implicated. Even though David was the king, he's going, I'm not going to take this matter into my own hand. Lord, I'm going to allow you to do it how you see fit. And how many times do we take things into our own matters in regards to justice, right? And what the Bible says that is, is it says that's an act of vengeance, Right? Usually what that is. David didn't issue orders to his officers to go out and slaughter his enemies. Instead, with a heart of submission, he turned it over to the Lord. I want to read to you Romans chapter 12, verses 9 through 21. If you guys want to turn there, please, this sums it up in regards to prayer. Romans chapter 12, verses 9 through 21, if the worship team wants to come up. Paul writes and he says this, man, let your love be without hypocrisy. And I love God's word. It ties so well together. It's, it's like it's supernatural or something. I don't know. He says, let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil. Cling what is to good. And then he goes on and says this, be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love in honor giving preference to one another, not lagging in indifference, fervent in, in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing steadfastly in prayer, distributing to the needs of the saints, given to hospitality, Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not set your mind on high things, but be associated with the humble. Do not be wise in your own opinion. Repay no one evil for evil. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. If it is possible, as much as it depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in doing so, you will heap coals of fire upon his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. God, you pronounce them guilty, not me. And lastly, David prayed for, in this act of submission, David prayed for 
God's blessing. See, often, guys, we, we go about our lives looking for ways to bless ourselves. And there's a new shotgun that I need over at Big R. Two of my friends have already got one. I'm pretty sure I need to bless myself with that. But, you know, we don't come to God in prayer and, and, and without a heart of submission and, and then be like, yep, that's what God told me. You know, we seek to do the blessing on our own. And whether it's the blessing of ourselves or the blessing of the enemies around us, you know, the outcome of our fellowship, guys, should ultimately be joy in his character, in God's character, in God's promises, and ultimately in God's gracious answer to his prayers, our gracious answer to our prayers. And that's where we allow God to bless us. That's how we allow God to bless us. And if we don't have that heart of submission, we're gonna miss out on the greatest blessing that God has for us anyway, as then we try to seek to bless ourselves. So let's, let not you guys stand, we'll pray. Lord, thank you, God, for the time that we get to have together in your word that instructs us, maybe a little bit clearer on how to pray. Lord, the attitude to have um, your attitude in, in a right way to those around us. And Lord, just how to honor you and glorify you in all things. Lord, thank you for these words of encouragement, Father. We love you and we worship you. And Lord, we pray all these things in our Savior, Savior's name, Jesus Christ, the King of Kings.